0: Checkity, check, check, check. There we go. Technical difficulties. Welcome to church, guys. Glad you're here today. Um, Good morning. Um, We've been walking through the book of Acts. And so if you have your Bibles, um, you can open them to Acts 9. Last week, um, Saul meets Jesus, or rather Jesus meets Saul, if you weren't with us. um, and has a dramatic conversion on his way to Damascus to persecute Christians. Um, And then kind of at the end, which we didn't really focus on, um, after meeting the guys in Jerusalem, threats against Saul's life start to roll in. (laughs) Um, And the guys are literally like, Saul, you should go home. And he goes home to Tarsus um, and chills out for the death threats to stop rolling in. And then what we're going to see happen in the book today is that Peter is going to jump back in the spotlight. And it's going to set the stage um, for this ethnic, cultural event um, that will leave the Jewish believers stunned uh, in the next two chapters. Um, the word it talks about, when we were going to finally get there, I'm just going to tease you today, um, the word stunned, amazed, literally means to lose their mind. <laughs> so in the next two chapters, what we're going to see is something is going to happen in the church that is going to cause them, it's going to throw them off balance, bewilder. Um, it's the word they use in the, in the Bible to describe someone beside themselves. So that's exciting. But today, before we get there, um, we see two miracles done by Peter. And I think I was tempted just to skip over it because I'm really excited about the next two chapters, but I'm, I'm think, I think it's important for us uh, to sit with this because it's going to emphasize something that I want to be ingrained in your heart and mind uh, by the time we're done with the book of Acts. I don't want to annoy you with this truth, basically. So we, I decided to hit um, this event instead of skipping it. So if you have your Bibles, it's Acts 9, uh, starting in verse 32. And we're going to read uh, through the rest of the chapter. Now, as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. And there he found a man named Aeneas, Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. 36. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. She's a Christian. In those days she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men urging him Please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dor- Dorcas had made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up and he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. Let's pray. Jesus, I ask that you would um, help us know today Um, God, that you have good things for us, Lord. Um, You have good works for us to participate in, in our day, in our time, um, and that you, Jesus, intend to empower us to live in a kind of way that we could never live um, on our own steam. So right now, I just ask, Holy Spirit, would you come? peace of God, would you rest on our hearts, Lord, and make us open to the idea that you may want to engage with us in a new and exciting way, even today. In your name we pray these things. Amen. Got some visuals for you today. Let's throw that map up. These two towns, uh, Lydda and Joppa, are both under about 30 miles northwest of Jerusalem. Um, Joppa is current day Tel Aviv, or close to it. And what we really get in this little portion of Acts 9 is really just a setting up as to why Peter is in Joppa. Because in the next couple chapters, they're going to send for him in Joppa. And this just seems to be kind of a, a gathering up of what Peter's been doing in Joppa. And what we see in, the, in this chapter is an experience of the supernatural through a follower of Jesus that even in that day on the scale of miracles is out there, okay? So, sickness being healed, thanks for the map. We, we can move on. Sickness being healed, sure. Physicians can do that, y'all, right? They had doctors that could heal sick people. Opening the eyes to the blind, ooh, ah, that's a little tougher, right? But a lame man, paralyzed for eight years, it's kind of unheard of. And then perhaps the most outlandish, hard to believe impossibility is someone raised from the dead. So this getting out there it should be noted however that Jesus had done the exact same thing in his earthly ministry and Peter is doing just what he saw Jesus do, especially in the case of Dorcas, almost exactly mirrors exactly what Jesus did in Mark 5 with Jairus' daughter, sends the people out, prays, raises her up, presents her alive, right? It's almost the exact identical format that Peter participates in is exactly what Jesus did. We see actually three times in the Gospels, Jesus brought someone back from the dead, in his ministry, Lazarus, John 11, Jairus' daughter, Mark 5, then a widow's son in Luke 7. And every time he does it, there is an uproar of astonishment and overwhelming and amazement because, contrary to popular belief, y'all, they weren't Neanderthals in the first century who mindlessly believed every paranormal claim out there like we sometimes think, right? Oh, they believed a chariot pulled the sun across the sky. Guys, this was Greco Roman. History, uh, time period. These these people stood on the shoulders of Plato and Pythagoras. Okay, the the Renaissance in the fifteen hundreds was simply a rediscovery of the scientific thinking that had established itself in that culture three hundred years prior. So these people had scientific thinking with which they assessed the universe. They were not just mindless Neanderthals, right? While the physicians of their day could do their best, this is clearly, that being said, this is clearly outside the realm of man's power or understanding, even today, okay? Anyone raised the dead lately? So what we are seeing in the book of Acts at 30,000 foot level is this, right? Nothing less than this. A new humanity, empowered and recreated by the spirit of God, advancing a completely new way of living, on the face of the earth, right? And the major point is this, we're seeing this over and over and over again in the book of Acts. It's done in a power that transcends not only our ability, but our understanding as well. We tracking? This transcends our ability and understanding. Jesus, y'all, is called the second Adam. What's that mean by that? Well, it's getting at his coming. Jesus' coming is this sort of kind of redo, for humanity, right? In Jesus, God is recreating humanity to live in a totally new way off of totally new power. First Corinthians, I'll give you a little reference right here. First Corinthians 15, the scripture tells us, the first man, Adam, became a living person, but the last Adam, the second Adam, that is Christ, is a a life-giving spirit. Adam, the first man, was made from the dust of the earth while Christ, the second man, came from heaven. Earthly people are like the earthly man and heavenly people are like the heavenly man, which, by the way, is where Watchman Nee got the title of his book, Heavenly Man. The point is, Christianity doesn't offer y'all a higher ethical standard of living like some might think, right? What is Christianity? Well, you just gotta follow these rules. You gotta you know, tighten up your morality. No, <laughs> Christianity offers a completely new way of existing. The new way, it's humanity 2.0. It's what we're seeing here. It's the next step. Jesus is the archetype and his spirit, the primary resource from which we exist. It is a new creation in the earth advancing, right? Jesus would say it this way. He wouldn't use 2.0 language. That's our language, right? He would say it this way. The kingdom of God has come and is advancing, So if you think about it that way, Jesus is saying, lay down your arms because a new king is here who is bringing a totally new and different way of living, right? Almost every parable Jesus preached began with this phrase, the kingdom of God is like. The kingdom of God is like. Jesus came proclaiming and demonstrating one thing, what is the kingdom of God like, right? And what do we see? What do we see in Jesus' ministry? What do we see the disciples doing exactly what Jesus did? Well, it looks like this: blind people regain sight, right? Sick people are made healthy. Lame people are made able to walk, dance again. Demons flee in terror, right? Deaf people are dead. People <laughs> are given back their life, right? Even dead people given back their life. So, what God is doing in Jesus and thus in his followers after him. Do you see what's happening on the bigger scale here? It's not just, y'all, miracle in scriptures are not just parlor tricks to gather a crowd like something. Jesus had words to say about that. No, the miracles are saying something, primarily that there is a new way to live a new power from which we can live. Dallas Willard gives the illustration of this when he talks about the kingdom of God. He says, the kingdom of God is not too different than when electricity moved across the Western frontier of the United States in the 1900s. When electricity, when the electrical grid came to the farmers of the Midwest in the early 19th century, right? Uh, 20th century, sorry. Um, It was a completely new way of living. And of course, many people resisted the integration of electricity in their farms, right? But those who did integrate electricity had a completely new resource from which to live. Dallas Willard said, that's kind of what the kingdom of God is like. It's kind of the kind of transformation that happens in our lives when we will integrate, when we will say yes to his rulership, his kingship. But the point is the miracles are saying something. They're communicating. Do you know what all of those miracles are doing? Do you know what all of those miracles are saying to us? They are a reversal of the fall. All of the miracles that happened in Jesus' ministry, all the miracles that the disciples did advancing the kingdom of heaven were reversing the consequences of sin. They were literally flipping it on its head back to the original intention that God had for us. God created creation good. And sin came in and the consequences of sin and befell us death and sickness. And every miracle is reversing that. It's healing the wound of the universe. And we're getting these snippets, these little snapshots of what the kingdom of God looks like when it comes. It's not just parlor tricks, y'all. It's not just things to make us feel spiritual. They're saying something to our hearts and minds. Almost if it's saying, when you say yes to the kingdom, it's as if you are receiving a new kind of vision. It's as if you can now see what God is doing where before you were blind to it. It's as if when you become a Christian, it's like you were deaf. And all of a sudden, your ears were open and you began to hear the voice of Jesus. When you were a Christian, when you become a Christian, it's as if you were sick and paralyzed. And when the power of Christ came in you, he he mobilized you, made you able to walk, to see, to dance, to rejoice. It's as if when you became a Christian, you were dead and a totally new kind of life infused you, brought you to new living, right? They're saying something to us. It's not, we shouldn't be. Guys, don't be distracted by the sign. Signs always point to something. And it's pointing to God's intentions for us. And in some ways, we can see it as a comforting. Those of us in this room and watching online who are nervous about the Holy Spirit, what kind of stuff does the Holy Spirit do? Well, he does the same stuff Jesus does. He heals, forgives. You know, a lot of people have bad things to say about the Holy Spirit. Very few people have bad things to say about Jesus. Jesus is very magnetic. People were drawn to Jesus. We tend to Heisman the Holy Spirit, don't we? And yet, what we see in Scripture is the Holy Spirit is none other than the Spirit of Christ himself. So I want to address some of the reservations that we have when it comes to thinking about the Holy Spirit Um, But before I get there, let me show you this last little graph. Here we go. Ready? Nope. That's not nope, no, that's the map. There's another one. I trust you. I trust you back there. Okay. So this, when you think about the kingdom of God coming, guys, this is a helpful picture for me because think about it. All those people died again. Tabitha died again. Lazarus died again. People got sick again, right? And so what we're seeing when Jesus came and when he empowers his disciples to go and advance the kingdom, what we're getting is an overlay of realities in a way. The kingdom of God coming and overlaying itself on our reality so that now accessible to us is the power and resources of the kingdom, but it's not yet fully, over, it's not a full eclipse, is it? No, no, people still die. Sickness, hatred, violence, all those things still happen. And yet what we have in Jesus is a new accessibility to the power in the kingdom of God. So I just wanted to show you that. That was a very helpful graph for me when I think about the kingdom of God um, advancing and there's two circles overlapping. So in fact, the Holy Spirit will be described as a deposit of what is to come guaranteeing our inheritance, right? And this is exactly what we see happening in this text. We're getting a glimpse of God's kingdom advancing through his people via the power of the Holy Spirit living and active in them. So if there's anything that we can get out of sitting with the book of Acts, it must be at least this, y'all right here. There is no Christianity outside a spirit filled Christianity. There is no Christianity outside of a spirit filled Christian. If you were not saying yes to the indwelling presence and power of the Spirit of God, then your faith has splintered off of biblical Christianity and is something else entirely. This is why I wanted to sit with this scripture, this particular event, because it's revealing, it's over and over and over again, we are gonna see that there is no Christianity without a spirit-filled, spirit-empowered Christianity. And if you are not saying yes to the power of the Holy Spirit in your heart and mind, you've splintered off to something else. You don't have a biblical Christianity, right? A.W. Tozer says this, the Holy Spirit makes Christianity depend upon a perpetual miracle. The man or woman of God, the true spirit-filled child of God is a perpetual miracle. He goes on to say this about the Holy Spirit. God has promised us a seizure, an invasion from above that is to come to us and take over. It is to be in us what we could never be by ourselves. To write sonnets, and he gives us a picture of this. I love this, I'm gonna read you the whole thing. To write sonnets, to compare with those of Shakespeare, you would have to have the spirit of Shakespeare. The intellect of Shakespeare would have to enter your personality because if you and I tried to write, shall I compare thee to a summer day, we would never get any further than that. If you want to compose music like Johann Sebastian Bach, you would have to have the spirit of Bach now. If we are going to reproduce Christ on earth and be Christ-like and show forth Christ, what are we going to need? We must have the spirit of Christ. The church is called to live above her own ability. She is called to live on a plane so high that no human being can live like that on his own ability and power. The humblest Christian is called to live a miracle, a life that is a moral and spiritual life with such intensity and such purity that no human being can do it, only Jesus can do it. Paul would later say it this way. What we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord in ourselves as your servants for his sake. For God said, who let... For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. Here it is. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that his all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. So from scripture, I, want, I hope that you'll see today that the whole idea of Christian living, of Christian motivation is done out of an all-surpassing power that does not originate with us. Okay, Peter did not heal this man. It was not his work. It was not his strength or intellect or ability, okay? And does that not seem blatantly clear from the text, right? The question today is not, do I possess the kind of power to do that? The question is, do I believe God has that kind of power? And more importantly, maybe, do I believe God does and still can do things like that and more wants me to participate in the supernatural process in other people's life? Okay, so... Jesus spoke of this, guys, and we've already said this from the pulpit. We've already said this in this series, right? John 7.38 says this: Whoever believes in me, as scripture said, rivers of living water will flow from within him. And what we said a couple of weeks ago is Jesus was referring, when he said living waters, he was referring to Jeremiah 2 and 17, where God calls himself living water. Okay? So what does that mean for us? Well, to be a Christian means that something from without is to come within that a power, a source, a love, a mission from without is to come within. And what does scripture say that something is? Well, it's God himself, that he wants to move in. And we see in this passage, nothing less than the normal mode of operation that Jesus intends his followers to have, which is this, right? That this new humanity, is to live and breathe and act out of a power other than their own, right? It's not our love. It's not our strength. It's his. And Peter's making that clear. And so, like I said, the main thing I want to sit with today is reservations some of us may have when it comes to what it means to be a Holy Spirit-filled Christian, right? If Christians are meant to be a living miracle, like Tozer said, if they are meant to be indwelled with power, not their own, right? If that indwelling, which I'd argue from this text and a hundred more texts we didn't read, if that indwelling is to be integral to what it means to be a Christian, if this is true, then why have so many people said of the modern church today in America that most of, being, most of what is being done in the church can be done without the help of the Holy Spirit? Have yeah. you heard this, In other words, is it possible that the church has decided to live, move, act, and breathe within its own abilities instead of relying on the power and presence of the Holy Spirit, right? You might have grown up in a tradition where the Holy Spirit was him we don't speak of, right? He's the guy that makes people weird and fanatical and uncomfortable and no thanks, my faith is dignified and reasonable and I'll have none of that Holy Ghost nonsense. For many Christians, the Trinity is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Scripture, right? And for whatever reason, right, we have abandoned the idea of God dwelling in us, living and active. And it's not horribly hard to see why, right? I mean, it's basically impossible to come to the conversation about the Holy Spirit with a blank slate. Everyone has something in their minds when you say baptized in the Holy Spirit. Normally it has more to do with Hollywood and less to do with the Bible. But I wanna, what I think I wanna help you discern today, right, is through the reservations you may have about what it means to have the Holy Spirit filling you indwelling you, right? And people can just get needlessly weird about this stuff, right? So let's have a look at the text and see what we can learn. The first thing I wanna point out is that Peter's words reveal to us the framework with which he uh, perceives the supernatural. Look at what he said to, to uh, the first the lame paralytic, right? Miracles in Christianity are not like any other mystical claim on the paranormal, what do I mean by that? Well, most claims on the paranormal or the supernatural are recipes for power, right? They're like goat's blood and you need some of this, or they're obtained through study or some sacred object. So think of like mystical monks or witch doctors or people who claim to talk to the dead, right? They have some object, right? Like the crystal ball, or whatever. So the claims of the supernatural and the paranormal normally revolve around that kind of stuff. Are we, are we, tra- are we talking here today? But what what does Peter say? He says, Jesus Christ heals you. Stand up in his healing, right? So Peter's framework, right, is that he is an extension of another power, another love. And whose power is it? Well, it's Jesus's power. So the first thing I want you to sit with today when we think about the Holy Spirit is that the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Christ, That's who he is. Romans 8 and 1 Peter 1 both refer to the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of Christ. If the Holy Spirit feels weird and unpredictable and not trustworthy, you need to know today that the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Christ. So if you wonder, what's the deal with the Holy Spirit? Like, what does he do? Well, you just gotta look at Jesus, right? We'll see places where Jesus healed people, right? And so if your question is, well, does the Holy Spirit make people jump up and down? Well, look at when Jesus healed people. Did they jump up and down? Yeah, some of them did. Yeah. Well, okay. Does the Holy Spirit rebuke and correct? Yeah. Yeah, Jesus did that too, right? Does the Holy Spirit heal people? Mm-hmm. Jesus did that, right? And physically, emotionally, spiritually. Does the Holy Spirit forgive your past? Yeah that's what he does. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He's the Spirit of Christ. Jesus did all that and more, and the Holy Spirit longs to take what Jesus did and make it real to us, like we said a couple weeks ago. Therefore, we, what we see in Scripture and in our own experience, when people experience the Holy Spirit, there is a wide variety of responses to the grace and forgiveness of God being made real to them in that moment, right? Right? So I don't know if you grew up in a church where that kind of stuff happened, but when some people experience the power of the Holy Spirit, a peace and a stillness comes over them, a sense of rest and calm. Some people cry. It's emotional for some people. Some people shout and dance. Some will kneel. And often, guys, the ideas that we gather about the Holy Spirit, right, is not from the biblical work of the Holy Spirit, but how we see people responding to the work of the Holy Spirit. Does that make sense? So isn't it easy to see how the Holy Spirit can get a bad rap? Because we see people responding to him in a wide variety of ways, often reflecting the person more than the work of the Holy Spirit. And we say, I don't want that. And, and often throw the baby out with the bathwater. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of Christ. And he makes real to us the work of Christ himself, right? Okay. So Peter said, Jesus Christ Heals you in this passage. And if you've seen a frothy, wacky, emotional expression of Christianity used to manipulate and control others and want nothing to do with it, neither do I. But I'll tell you what else I don't want anything to do with is a Christianity that lacks the power to actually change anything in my heart and mind, right? So I would rather risk experiencing and saying yes to the Holy Spirit and letting him make real to me the work of Jesus, then risk a Christianity that has no efficacy in my life, has no power to transform, no power. And the real deal of Christianity in Scripture is Holy Spirit-filled Christianity. There is no other. You won't find it. Okay. So in Acts, when it talks about the the power of the Holy Spirit and and throughout the, the Bible, it uses the word dunamis, from which we get the word, from which we have derived the word dynamite. Okay, so dynamite, not been invented yet. So we didn't, we didn't see dynamite and say, that's what's happening. People saw the effect of the Holy Spirit and said, that's what dynamite looks like. Like black powder wasn't even used till the 7th century. Dynamite actually wasn't, a little research. <laughs> dynamite actually wasn't uh, invented until the 1870s uh, by Alfred Noble, Noble Peace Prize guy. And he decided to use the Greek name dunamis, right, dynamite, uh, to label his chemical mixture of nitroglycerin. The word itself, dunamis, is used 120 times in the New Testament, referring to the power of God, right? Um, And in Acts 1.8, it was that where he said, wait until the power of the Holy Spirit comes. That's dunamis, dynamite. It is power that actually does things, literally blows mountains to pieces, so the picture is, is telling, isn't it? It's getting to us, communicating to us the kind of impact God can and longs to maybe have in your heart and mind. And so the question pops into my mind immediately, if I'm not seeing the power of Christ actually do something in my heart and mind, defeat sin, remove guilt, fill me with joy, give me energy to love, am I missing out on biblical Christianity? Right? So the other thing I want you to see in this passage about the Holy Spirit. um, And almost every time in the book of Acts, when the Holy Spirit falls, every time He heals, every time He's manifested, given, whatever, every time signs and wonders happen, people get saved. That's one of the things that always, almost, always happens when the Holy Spirit falls. It's twice in this short passage. We see it twice, 35 and 42. All the residents of Lidda and Sharon saw him and they turned to the Lord. So all the residents of Lidda and Sharon, like revival happens in this small town. Okay? And then 42, it became known throughout all of Joppa, and many believed in in the Lord. And we're going to see this repeated over and over and over in the book of Acts, right? In other words, this power, the power of the Holy Spirit does not only come to comfort and strengthen and transform and heal his people, but here the end result is not simply goosebumps and the affirmation of salvation, but causing new salvation to spring up from the ground, new spiritual life in dead places. Almost every time in the book of Acts, when the spirit falls, poured out, outsiders are brought in. So it's an interesting uh, thing to notice when we think about what does the Holy Spirit do? Does he just give us good services? No. I mean, yes, do that, that'd be great, but that's not the point, is it? Every time he comes, every time he falls, every time his spirit is made manifest, people from the outside are brought in, or you could say it this way, God's spirit longs to intimately indwell you. It's true, yes and amen. He wants you to know you're saved. He wants you to give you assurance of salvation. That's what he does. He leads you to truth. He sanctifies you, yes and amen. He empowers you, yes and amen but he is not about you. The Holy Spirit is not about you. He doesn't exist for you and only for you. His intentions aren't just to get you fat and happy as a Christian, but rather longs to conscript you into his joy of seeking and saving the lost, right? Raising new life in dead places. You can say it this way. The effect of the Holy Spirit on you will never lead you to become more self-centered. Never. The Holy Spirit leads us to be God-centered and others-focused. The Holy Spirit, what he's gonna do is he's going to obliterate pride. That's something he's gonna do, right? He's, he, the Holy Spirit is gonna bring to your attention the needs of others instead of causing you to obsess about your needs, right? The Holy Spirit will convict you of sin, right? And will really, rarely point out the sins of others, right? And if he does, it ain't for you to be all judgmental, okay? Despite that, despite that external work, right? Or I'm sorry, the internal work, others, the Holy Spirit work tends to be others focused, right? Despite that, sorry, the human heart is such that it will take anything and everything and try to fit it in a cosmos that revolves around them, right? So, and sometimes if Christianity will aid them in creating a universe that revolves around them, sure, I'll take some Jesus, you know what I mean? And it's, and I think it's easy to get a little confused, right? The preacher's always saying stuff like, God loves you, he values you, he died for you, and we can drift into thinking, God's all about me, right? <laughs> and I, I'll, I'll, all the stuff I wanna do, God's gonna make that happen, right? And so we've talked about this often here, like right? The consumerism that happens in the church. And I, I'd even argue that droves of people are leaving the church right now because they were functioning under the reality that church was all about them that Holy Spirit is all about them. God's all about them. It's no longer entertaining, no longer feel, stop singing the songs I like. So, so you drift onto all that stems from a perspective that God and the church and the Holy Spirit exist for me instead of the other way around. I mean, the, the reason I'm still here, right, as a Christian and a pastor in this ministry, is not because I find this event entertaining. Uh, the, the reason I am still here, the reason I'm Continuing to do those things, because I have a conviction that Jesus is the most beautiful, worthy, powerful person in the universe, and my worship of him manifests itself in the serving of others. I mean, that, that's the reason we, because he poured himself out to death, so I, I want to reflect that, right? So while we are the object of God's affections, praise his name, his affections do not terminate on us, Okay? They don't terminate on us. You know what happens when we think they do? Things get stinky. You ever been around stagnant water, mosquitoes, rot, mold, nasty junk? When we began to think that God's power, that his love are for us and us alone, we become selfish children, like Veruca Salt from Willy Wonka. You know, that no little snotty girl. Daddy, I want a golden goose. Remember that one? Give me, give me. I can't tell you how many times I've listened to people talk about church or God, and I just see her little head in my voice. I want a golden goose, daddy. <laughs> and I think when I, when I hear people that have drifted into that kind of thinking about God and the Holy Spirit and, and community, I have a couple thoughts. First, I think you're not gonna last long. And second, I think you must be so angry all the time because you know the problem with thinking everything revolves around you is that no one else knows that. So you gotta go around telling everyone that it's all about you. I mean, how exhausting is that, right? Going around trying to communicate to everyone, this is about me, everyone. (laughs) It's about me, my desires, my wants, right? God's gift to us, totally free. We can't pay for it. We can't prove we deserve it. While his kingdom heals us, redeems us. Yes, it's not first and foremost about you. And therefore, we don't get the glory. That's the whole thing about grace and faith, right? And that's why I would argue that a desire to worship, hang with me, a desire to worship y'all, to say thank you, is one of the only clear indicators of saving faith, if you ask me. The substitutionary work of the cross of Christ, capturing your imagination, right? And and uh, reflecting that and, and pouring yourself out in gratitude towards that work, to me, is one of the only clear indicators you have saving faith, a thankfulness, a gratitude in your hearts. If you are banking, guys, on your love or your valiant acts of compassion to give you worth to God and to others, then you have no reason to worship, right? Right? In fact, what we see in, book, in the book of Acts is a determined fixation on the glory of Christ. They are unflinching in their commitment to preach Christ and Christ alone. And in that proclamation, the Holy Spirit comes and does what no sermon can do, which is heal and seek and save the lost. And here's the last, maybe, uh, maybe more relevant reason that I think people avoid and are uh, nervous about the Holy Spirit. This is the last one I have for us today that in the depths of their heart, they know they don't deserve it. And in a weird kind of self-fulfilling cycle of self-hatred and shame and guilt, they say, man, you know, living in victory sounds awesome. Living in a power source like a, that's awesome sounds great, but it's not for me because I'm a gutter human, All right? I'm trash and I know I deserve to be thrown out. And I honestly think that that, more so than any of the other things that I've said today, keeps us from receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit. And here's the breathtaking thing about the gospel. God says, yeah, that's true. He's not gonna lie to you. (laughs) He's not gonna be like, yeah, you're fine. Just believe in yourself. No, no, the whole believe in yourself, dude, that's the empty promise of modern humanistic thinking, right? God says you do deserve wrath. I do see what you've done, and it does deserve to be thrown into the trash heap, but instead, I'm gonna place the weight of your depravity on my son. The punishment that you and I both know we deserve, I'm gonna let it fall on him. Him, the one they call the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Despite the undeniable reality of your inner wretchedness, he still loves you. That's the gospel doesn't brush it under the rug. It calls it what it is. Sin is sin. We've rebelled against our creator. We make ourselves into trash heap, basically. Worthlessness. And despite our own sense of being disqualified, God still longs to give us value, empower us with a new way of living, right? I think God wants some of us to know today that even though we may have abandoned him in some places of our hearts and lives, he has not abandoned us. Some of the sermons in Acts are outright harsh. We've seen that, right? God doesn't sugarcoat or whitewash the deal, but he also doesn't abandon us because we are bitter or are in darkness. Praise his name, right? It was his spirit that came to the crippled man and healed him. It was his spirit that came to the dead and brought then back to life, right? And he he invites us to be a part of that mission in the earth for our joy and his glory. I'm gonna pray for us right where we're sitting right now, okay? Let's pray. Lord, I ask that you would open our hearts to the power of your spirit bearing down on us today, Jesus. God, I ask you um, that you would physically heal today. Lord, there are Ailments and areas of suffering that we have told no one about. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come right now and breathe your power on us in places that are not lined up correctly, Jesus. God, I pray for physical healing in the name of Jesus, Lord. Come. Heal the bodies of your servants, Jesus. Lord, would you. Show us your kingdom is indeed at hand and that you are trustworthy, Lord, that you are safe to invite in. God, for those of us um, who are very reserved when it comes to the Holy Spirit, Lord, would you break down the barriers in our hearts and minds right now, Jesus? Lord, I pray that you would knock loose spiritual obstacles in our hearts and minds when it comes to opening ourselves up to you, Lord. Lord, you know the areas that we have put up walls in between you and us, and I pray by the power of your Spirit you would blow those away. The third thing, Father, I'm going to ask right now is that for those of us who are um, undeniably in bondage, Lord, for those of us in this room for whom our sin feels like an oppressive dark mountain that towers over the reality of our our life's Jesus, would you Break the mountain into pieces, Lord. Lord, for those who feel completely wrapped up in bondage of their own sin, would you break the chains in Jesus' name? You know, a picture I've had for some weeks as to what I believe God wants to do in many of our hearts and lives um, comes from, forgive me, uh, but the Marvel movies. Where at the end, you know, all, all the bad guys kind of turn to dust, you know, that little bit. And I've just seen that over and over in my heart and mind. I'm feeling that the Lord wants to take the sins and the chains that are wrapped around our hearts and by the breath of his mouth, disintegrate them. And that those things which to us feel immovable, the sins and the darkness that is oppressing your heart and mind right now, he can blow away with the breath of his mouth. Lord, you you break chains, Lord. Things that we are powerless to do. Holy Spirit, would you come and heal and restore and set free in the name of Jesus. Let's stand. I wanna pray for us, then we'll, we're gonna sing a song, Matt? Okay. If you aren't experiencing the power of Christ in your life in real and effective ways, I wanna pray for you today. And if you find yourself in need, let's just agree before the Lord right now. Let's pray. Father, we admit to you um, the inadequacy of our own efforts to walk in freedom. So Father, we ask um, and acknowledge, Lord, a sense of need in our own hearts first, Lord. I mean, we ask that you would come and fill those places in our hearts and life so we feel powerless to act, Lord. Bring the dunamis, Lord, the power, the dynamite of the Holy Spirit and move the things that are in our way spiritually. Jesus, come and we ask that you would push back darkness in our hearts and mind by the power of God, Jesus' name. We love you, God. Matt, you're gonna lead us in a song. Let's sing, guys, and then we'll then we'll uh, then we'll pray and be dismissed.